This is an ABC podcast. And welcome to the Little Wireless Program, coming to you from Gadigal Land. Shortly, we're off to the failed state with our tour guide, Bruce Shapiro, then to Cambodia for the final stages of the Khmer Rouge trials, and then back a couple of thousand years as we uh, make the transition from the oral to the written. But first, to Bruce Shapiro. The rhetoric is getting more dangerous, the war in Ukraine with talk of dirty bombs and Joe's coming under a lot of pressure to try and negotiate a ceasefire in the war in Ukraine from his own party, Bruce. Well, this is there's a very interesting split uh, emerging among Democrats and the Biden ranks who until now um, have been at least publicly united um, in supporting Biden's policy. Yesterday, 30 uh, Democratic members of the House of Representatives, all liberals, progressive Democrats, uh, led by Pramila Jaipal, the chair of the Congressional uh, Progressive Caucus, uh, called on Biden in an open letter to... um, create what they're describing as a proactive diplomatic push, that is to negotiate directly with Russia uh, to try to bring an end to the war. Uh, The Biden administration's uh, viewpoint, up until now anyway, and in response to this letter still, is that actually uh, the aggrieved party here is Ukraine, that it's up to President Zelensky and the the, people of Kyiv to decide when and how to engage with Russia um, and that uh, you know if you talk to people then more privately and the inside what they're saying is look um, this war is about uh, as Senator Chris Murphy said in a tweet yesterday this is about standing up to a bully and the only thing we can do is kind of keep pumping money and arms into this um, until Russia withdraws uh, you know, the the Zelensky view was actually very supportive of negotiation prior to Russia's invasion. It has since turned into a much harder line saying Russia simply needs to leave the territory it annexed two months ago, the territory it invaded in February, and the territory that it invaded uh, in Donbass uh, in 2014. Just Russia, go home. Um, it, it this reflects an underlying divide in American policy here that has been quietly simmering in the background and now has burst publicly. Now, um, some what, some Russia experts, uh, Bruce, insist that Putin will only negotiate uh, with what he sees as a as a comparable superpower, and that's the USA. Well, th- and that is you know that may turn out to be true. I think it's also the reality that back-channel negotiation has been and is going on. And indeed, a little of that leaked out this week when we were informed that there was um, 
direct contact between Lloyd Austin, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, and his Russian counterpart. Um, they've been negotiating this week, in fact, over this dirty bomb issue. So, you know, there is private talking. I think the challenge that these progressive Democrats uh, face here is that their ranks include a lot of folks who up until a couple of months ago, up until after the U.S. invasion, or sorry, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, really showed very little interest in Ukraine. Um, it was primarily the sort of uh, more hawkish wing of the Democratic Party, which had been paying attention to Ukraine's ongoing struggle for democratic civil society and to um, navigate its independence in the face of Russia. Um, and, you know, frankly, the Progressive Caucus includes some folks who have an even stronger view, which is that Ukraine really, that, that Russia has a legitimate claim on Ukraine historically and politically and that it should be within Russia's zone of interest as a matter of diplomacy. That's a minority within the Progressive Caucus, but it's there. Um, and then there is, you know, the other, what you might call the pragmatic view among progressives, which is, as well, all wars end in diplomacy and let's make sure this one ends sooner rather than later. Um, the challenge, of course, is not on the U.S. side. The challenge, frankly, is President Putin, who takes every opportunity to de-escalate and instead, um, whether it's because he's fending off his, his own right flank or because of his own messianic vision of a new Russian empire, um, seems to feel free, as he did this week with a growing number of transfers of children and orphans out of Russian-held territory, seems um, determined to commit war crimes virtually every week. Progressives find themselves in in a tough place on this one, and that's not to say that, that they're wrong, but that they don't have a lot of political leverage on this one. The Biden administration is very clear on its goals, and it seems to be unwavering in its commitment that, as President Biden said, there will be no, you know, no negotiations over Ukraine without Ukraine. And of course, uh, it's difficult to go into negotiations without undermining the UN Charter. Indeed. Um, this is about a sovereign nation um, defending itself, albeit with a lot of uh, money and a lot of arms from the West. I, the Biden administration, I think, is also mindful of how often in the past the U.S. has betrayed um, people struggling for sovereignty who have you know, signed up for U.S. support, whether that is the Kurds in Iraq in a different way, though it's about U.S. occupation, the uh, you know, Afghan civil society. The Biden administration is not keen to be uh, portrayed as abandoning um, a nation struggling for democratic independence um, and European identity in the face of, of a Russian invasion uh, to see, be seen as selling out the Ukrainians. This is not something the Biden administration wants. So it's a, you know, it's a complicated picture. And of course, of course, across the aisle, we've got uh, many Republicans questioning the cost and, uh, you know, they, they're almost seeing the current situation as helping with the winning of the house. 
Well, indeed. And that's, you know, for, uh, former President Trump and the MAGA Republican allies have adopted um, not just a not a pro-negotiation um, stance, but uh, an anti-interventionist stance altogether. They've said this is not America's sphere of interest. And they are hoping that since Ukraine is pretty low on most U.S. voters' priorities in the face of the economy, etc., they're hoping that this will help turn the tide toward them. Um, And there is a a kind of point where the anti-interventionist left and the isolationist right meet on on the Ukraine issue. And we we have to say that too. Again, there's a faction in the anti-interventionist left that simply has seen um, that saw the Maidan rebellion as an exercise in in U.S. interventionism, which is an absurd distortion of history. There are anti-interventionists on the left who accept President Putin's description of that 2014 um, Maidan civil society 2000, uh, uprising as uh, as as a coup, rather than as a a popular rebellion against a corrupt corrupt oligarchic-led Russian ally who had um, betrayed his own people and shot his own people at the Maidan. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of myth-making both left and right going on in this in the face of the ongoing horrors of Ukraine. Now, let's go back to where we left off last week touring some of the more interesting midterm races and uh, let's go to Alaska. This is totally fascinating and if you want a microcosm of how insanely complicated American politics are in this most important midterm since the US Civil War, most consequential. And if you want to know why they are so unpredictable, we can look at Alaska. Now, Alaska has first of all been mostly Republican in who it's elected for quite a long time. Um, It's incumbent Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski is a a, sometimes described as a centrist conservative. She's someone who has broken with Republican ranks occasionally on things like Supreme Court appointments. She's one of those who you're you're always looking to count when you're wondering how the Senate is going to go. She did something last night that no Republican uh, in recent American political history and high office has done. Um, In the House race, that is going on at the same time as her Senate re-election race, um, Lisa Murkowski endorsed the Democrat, uh, endorsed um, the Democrat who was elected, uh, uh, Petola, who was elected in the ranked choice um, short-term election a few months ago, who now Mary Petola is going uh, Peltola is going for a full term. And here We're Lisa talking Murkowski, about the first Alaskan native in Congress. The first Alaskan native in Congress, the first Democrat in Congress from Alaska in a generation, uh, and the first election, actually, that's happened with uh, Alaska's new ranked choice voting system, which you all understand much better than, than we do, right? And Lisa Murkowski said that she was stepping over Sarah Palin, the former governor, former vice presidential candidate, stepping over another MAGA Republican and instead endorsing Democrat Mary Peltola, um, who, as uh, as 
the best person as her, her top-ranked candidate. And at the same time, um, Murkowski herself is running for re-election, and because it's a ranked-choice system, she has got a, uh, a MAGA Republican running a very hard race to her right, and she's in a very close race. So what we're seeing here in Alaska, which you think of as traditionally Republican territory, is a Democrat making inroads in a House seat, a Republican needing to embrace that Democrat in order to hold office, and at the same time, that same conserv that same moderate Republican's own Senate seat kind of up for grabs. This is... You know, Alaska is a wild state. This is a wild election. But in its closeness, in the stakes, in the shifting alliances, it mirrors what is going on in other ways that are a little bit less visible because Alaska is the only state with a ranked choice system, but are visible in other ways from Pennsylvania to Florida to Georgia to the other states that we have been watching over the last few months. Now, Alaska is a big place physically, but quite a small population, only 600,000, and Alaskan natives make up 15% of the population. They do, and that is one of the, uh, you know, one of the factors that elected Mary Peltola uh, the first time around, a couple of months ago, uh, in the interim election in which she was, uh, in which she ran. And, you know, Lisa Murkowski herself, though she is from Republican royalty, her, her father was a U.S. senator and governor of Alaska and actually appointed her to the job. She actually became, when she was, became U.S. senator, the first uh, Alaska-born um, politician to hold federal office from Alaska, right? So there are deep cultural and historical resonances going on in this election. And again, we find mirrors of that elsewhere in, where, you know, in Georgia, we are pitting the legacy of the historic legacy of the civil rights movement against the revived um, nostalgia for the Confederacy and the old Deep South. This Bruce, is, I've, got to, I've got to wind you up. Uh, we will talk again in seven days. The voice of Bruce Shapiro, uh, Exec Director of the Dart Centre for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University. Off now to uh, Cambodia for the end of the war crimes trial. When uh, Late Night Live travelled to Cambodia in 2015, it was 40 years after the Khmer Rouge had marched into the capital and unleashed its reign of terror and genocide. By the time they were overthrown, about four years later, between one and a half and two million people had been killed. That's one-fifth of the entire population. One of the most memorable interviews of our time there was with Yuk Chang, Executive Director of the Documentation Centre of Cambodia, or DC CAM, as it's known. Yuk is a survivor of the killing field and has dedicated his life to uncovering the truth about what happened. And his work has been vital 
in the proceedings of the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia, or the ECCC. Now, last month, the court delivered its final verdict, rejecting an appeal by the regime's last surviving leader, bringing to an end a process that after almost two decades and a cost of around half a billion Australian dollars has led to just three convictions. Now, to discuss the legacy of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, Yuk Chang joins us now once again from Nonpen, and with me in the studio is Dr Christoph Schwerfeld, a senior lecturer at Macquarie Law School, and uh, Christoph has previously worked in Cambodia as a senior advisor with the German development agency GIZ and was an advisor to the victim support section of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, and I welcome you both. Yuk, after all these years... What does the end of the tribunal mean to you? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, after all this year, um, you know, it, it, I'm still in the process to conclude what does it mean. But, you know, immediately I think that is a very meaningful process to many of us, or almost to all of the survivors. And I think that we would have such a deep regret had not we came to this far in terms of, you know, bring the senior leader on trials and have all, you know, facing to the demand from the global community to respond to them on what happened in Cambodia during 1975 to 79. I, as a survivor, I feel that I, I have done what I could, uh, you know, to, to bring this process into, uh, to this far. You were about 14 years old when the Kamurush came to power. I've never forgotten what you told me in our interview, but I'd like you to repeat the essence of it. What was your life like? The daily life, uh, you know, you woke up at four without food, without shoes. Uh, you have one pair of clothes for an entire four years. Uh, you you know you spend the rest of your days in the field, ditching canals. Um, sometimes you have food, sometimes you have a two spoon of waters during the summer times, and you witness things. You know that some of your colleagues being executed in front of you. Um, you don't have a chance to see your families. Um, you don't have food to eat for several months. As a kid of age of 14, I don't understand why this happened to me. Uh, you know, why I had to be separated from my families. And, you know, it's uh, the daily life is just like um, something that you can't even describe in words or in writings uh, because it's, it's beyond human imagination that, that human can do this to, to other humans, you know, uh, themselves. I can never forget you telling me that you were nearly beaten to death for stealing some grains of rice for your sister who was pregnant. Well, you know, my sister alive, she's one of the survivors today and I am proud. And, but what I would say now, um, it's, it's a shameful act 
perhaps to a lot of young population today because when you steal something that people would consider, you know, it is a bad act. But then I, I had no other choice watching my sister, you know, being pregnant and no food to eat. So I decided to went to the to steal, you know, the grain of rice from that were fell off on the ground, knowing that such an act also would consider as a crime and can be punished. But out of, you know, desperation, you know, desperately that we need something to eat. So I, 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 I took it and I steal it. Then I, you know, uh, I got arrested. And I think that they, they've been watching me and they trapped me. You know, uh, they know where I would escape. I I saw the, the guard from other direction, but I think they've been watching me. And then so I was trapped and got arrested. And it was beat up severely with the axe, with the knife. Uh, I didn't cry, you know. I, I, I accept the punishment because I know it was the wrong thing to do. But, you know, uh, years later, I think it's unfair. I think it's it's a brutal, it's uh, unacceptable. Christoph, from the very start, the tribunal was fraught with challenges. And, of course, we have the, the paradox that Hun Sen was himself a Khmer Rouge military officer and uh, keen to limit the, the hypothetical court's jurisdiction. Yeah, I mean, this, these were very challenging starting points for the justice process. When I first arrived in 2007, someone like you had already worked for yeah, almost two decades on promoting um, truth and justice for the Khmer Rouge. So it was a very long process to arrive at the time that to, the prime ministers in Cambodia requested access from the United Nations to actually initiate a justice process. And these kind of politics that were there from the beginning have permeated the Khmer Rouge tribunal process throughout. It's a sort of unique hybrid court, isn't it, with Cambodian and international judges? It is the result from these kind of political negotiations um, where we both have, uh, in terms of the staffing, in terms of the laws that we apply, a unique kind of hybrid constellation uh, that hasn't been, in these kind of circumstances, applied to any other tribunal before. Christoph, how was uh, how was it funded? Because funding was a big hurdle. Yeah, contrary to the other international tribunals that we often know, like the former tribunal for Yugoslavia, Rwanda, or the ICC, the Khmerish tribunal is funded by voluntary contribution, not by assessed contributions from the UN budget. And that means essentially that the tribunal had to constantly fundraise for its operations throughout its existence. Australia has been the third largest donor. At least the third largest donor, exactly. So what's its real ultimate purpose? To educate the world or to educate the Cambodians? I mean, for the tribunal, the ultimate purpose uh, would be to uh, deliver justice uh, for some more for the survivors, but also for the society at large. And yes, as you'll rightly point out, there is also an educational component to it in that many Cambodians wanted to know the truth about the regime. Now, it's significant, Christoph, that the court has taken place in country, in effect. Exactly. And this is also a distinct feature of the court compared to some of these other tribunals that were located far away from the locations where the crimes occurred. Here we have a court that was located inside in the country, making it politically more challenging for the institution, but also enabling much more engagement with society at large. Back to you, York. Tell us how your organisation, DC CAM, helped with the tribunal. 
Well, we basically provide the historical evidence to all sides, you know, to the prosecutor, to the defense, to the civil party lawyers, and to anyone that that have access, that, that, that wish to obtain the materials. We have provided more than half a million of material so that the court can build up the case and follow, you know, um, from there. And we also help to bring survivor to witness for us seeing the process is also justice. So we bring about 500 survivors each month to observe the hearing at the tribunal. And we also do public education. And on top of that, we, we think that it's an opportunity uh, to also address the teaching of genocide in the school curriculum, which we managed to do so. You, as, as, well, as well as your massive archive, you also conducted oral histories, didn't you, with both former Khmer Rouge and the victims? Correct. We, we generate the sources of individuals from our archive and we, we, we divide into categories of interview, one for the survivor, like purely victim who suffered by the Khmer Rouge, another group is someone who served the regime at any level, even driver, cook, and so forth, because each questionnaire requires different approach. For the former Khmer rules, we cannot mislead or ask questions for them to be self-incriminating or violate their right, because we know what they did. But we managed to conduct this history since 1995 until today. But today, and people more open now even more than 25 years, 20 years ago. Christoph, the world is waiting with fascinating horror for someone from the Trump regime to do serious time. Meanwhile, back in Cambodia, this great process has resulted in a total of three convictions. Look, um, international criminal justice has always been marked by long trials, complicated um, proceedings and investigations, simply because of the nature and the scale of the crimes. So that was something that was to be expected. In Cambodia, we have obviously the added layer that, first of all, a lot of the accused were very old. So roughly half of the accused have died before even convictions could have been reached. And then there were the, was the politics that made uh, additional prosecutions beyond those senior leaders this impossible. Is be, this is because Hun Sen wanted to make sure only the very top officers would be charged. Exactly. That is the, mainly the uh, remaining members of the Central Committee of the Khmer Rouge Alive, as well as Doik, the uh, head of the S21 Security Centre. I remember learning about that security centre. 16,000 to 20,000 people entered and less than 20 survived. Yeah, I mean, this is, is really a hallmark of the Khmer Rouge regime and um, the central kind of memorial and museum site um, for, uh, for the crimes. Have any of the senior leaders ever expressed remorse, Christoph? Um, the senior leaders themselves, not but Doik, um, like who led the, um, the S21 security centre, has at multiple occasions expressed statements of remorse throughout the proceedings, when, particularly when confronting survivors in courtroom. You're given the fact that just three people were held accountable. Do you feel that justice has been served? For me, it's um, process is matter, not the number of people that you prosecuted. And, you know, a process that people can participate, the world can join, people can criticize, can make sense out of it. 
I think that's more important. I mean, you you think about who should be prosecuted can be a lot of people. Even though you kill a person, even though you harm a person, you are also more responsible. So from beginning, I never look at the number, but look at the process so that we all can participate. I remember being in Cambodia and realizing that survivors and former perpetrators are still living side by side. Correct. I mean, it's hard to separate them, you know, because sometimes once a perpetrator and later become a victim, or the other one was a victim and later become the perpetrator, it's one of the most difficult things that we have to confront on a daily basis as of now. But the tribunal helped help to fill that gap that we can come closer and uh, more understanding. And also with the growing of young population, uh, you know, it uh, is separate from look at each other differently. Your Kyova conducted surveys to find out how Cambodians feel about the work of the tribunal. I understand that uh, support has been consistent with at least 80%. Correct. You know, we do this regularly since 1995 and always discovered that 80% at least of the people believe that this issue must be addressed and they support any process with international participation to provide us final judgment. You know, we have small percentage of people who disagree, at least from 8 to 15% all the time, and which we can understand. I think without the people who disagree, I think it, it made the court, you know, it's it's sort of like a shame trial. But in fact, there are always two views uh, about the trial from beginning until the end. But the majority is always in favour of the tribunal. 80% support. I understand, however, that only half the survivors have actually followed the trials. Uh, you know, people look at the trial in a different way. For example... When Ian Sri was arrested, many survivors feel that justice being done, so they move on. Uh, when it was, you know, 2016, when the court announced the lifetime imprisonment for all these leaders, people feel that this is done, you know. So you can see that the number who follow the tribunal, it's, it's decreasing, not because they don't support, but because they feel a matter of satisfaction out of the process, and they... You use it to find your own closure. Christoph, can you tell me more about the way that victims were able to participate in the proceedings? It's not as simple as it might seem. It isn't. Even though the court is based in Cambodia, it was still difficult for, obviously, uh, a lot of the elderly uh, survivors who lived in rural areas of Cambodia to access the proceedings. So here we have uh, like an active network of civil society and DCCAM was one of those many NGOs that tried to connect and build a bridge to survivors in the provinces of Cambodia and the court by going back and forward and uh, enable them to participate in the proceedings, including as civil parties, as we call them. Civil parties, not just witnesses. Exactly. And this is a distinct feature, again, based on Cambodia's uh, civil law tradition, that victims have the right to participate as an own party in the proceedings alongside the defence and the prosecution. Christoph, anything given to victims by way of compensation, reparation? Uh, reparations was piece and part of the Khmer Rouge mandate from the beginning. Uh, there have been big debates 
what would be adequate and appropriate in this context. And from the beginning, the Khmer Rouge Tribunal has limited uh, reparations to what we call in the rules collective and moral reparations, meaning more collective and symbolic reparations. I'm sorry, I, I just want to dwell on that. Collective and moral reparations. That sounds lovely, but is it just feel good? It is essentially perhaps what this institution, which is a criminal tribunal, was able to deliver in a very challenging context. Remember, the crimes have been committed more than 30, 40 years ago. So anything that the tribunal would have delivered would always be symbolic in nature. And because only few survivors were ever able to participate, I think a lot of Cambodians agreed that a collective dimension was important to these kind of reparations. Tell me about the National Remembrance Day. So there were a lot of ideas what kind of form these kind of collective and symbolic reparations could do. And there were, uh, from the beginning, ideas and proposals circulating around that a National Remembrance Day would be an appropriate choice. There were lots of discussion around the dates. And in the end, the Cambodian government turned an existing Memorial Day into the National Remembrance Day through legislation. You, in the past, you have said you hoped the tribunal would help Cambodians move forward and heal. Has that kind of reconciliation happened yet, or is it happening? Uh, the process of the tribunal helped us to continue to move on and heal. Uh, you know, give a lot of legitimacy to anything else that post ECCC will be doing. For example. You know, right now we began to pair young uh, generation with the survival for to collect all our history, and uh, people are very happy about that. And you know, having see all young these people in the village and carry a piece of pencil and a paper and come, you know, from door to door and asking their life story. I think that with the knowledge of the tribe, you don't have done something. It brings us closer to healing, and I think that also people are aging. They look at these things differently compared from the way they looked at it 20 years ago. So all of this come into place. And But again, you know, it's never be the same. When, when a glass been broken, doesn't matter how hard you try to bring all those pieces to put them back together, it will never be the same. Your, your uh, surveys show that uh, 26% of people still suffer nightmares of the period. I suspect you're amongst that number. Yes, uh, we're working closely with an NGO called TPO that provides group counseling, individual counseling, and I think that those consider the most severe, you know, a person who lost the entire family or witnessed the killing of the husband or children or someone being, you know, uh, doesn't make sense of what happened and still living under poverty today. And unfortunately, there's still a lot of them around. And also because of limited services in terms of, uh, you know, public health, uh, mental health, uh, directly to the survivors, so those still a, a crucial thing to deal with. York, do you worry about the younger generation losing touch with this history? Uh, I do, but I think it's going to be hard for them to escape their own history because it began from home. It began from their parents, their grandparents, it's going to be with them, and they just cannot escape from it. And at school right now, it's compulsory in terms of teaching on the Khmer history as well. So it, the youth in Cambodia would find it 
hard, even though they want to forget, or even they want to not to engage because it's it's begin from home. It's at home. Christoph, the court is now being wound up. What work is there still to be done in Cambodia? I mean, first of all, I can just join you in stressing the importance of work with the youth and the next generation. So that kind of educational mission that you mentioned at the very beginning, I think that is a mission that will continue. And many organizations like DCCAM, but also universities, will play an important role. The second thing is to preserve the archives, make them accessible, and that will be important tool for this kind of uh, educational mission for future generations. I think there's also a job to do to remind Cambodia and indeed the world what the context for the Khmer Rouge was, you know, to go back before. Exactly. The mandate of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal was always limited just to 75 and 79. This kind of broader story, like the broader story about the context of the Khmer Rouge violence. Uh, obviously, it also includes the time before the Khmer Rouge came to power, but also the time afterwards during the 80s. This has not been subject by the tribunal, and it is still a story that will have to be told. I remember asking you this question in Cambodia, Yuk. What are your hopes for your country? Are you optimistic about its future? I'm, I'm still optimistic. I think that Cambodia, you know, have a very high resilience, have the ability to, you know, to face all this difficulty in the last 70 years. I think that they will manage. Um, it's just like we don't know which direction they are going to, but I think that they, they, they will be able to stand up and, you know, to rebuild after the Khmer Rouge and to, to grow. A Sorry, a final question to you, Christoph. Lessons from Cambodia to be learnt when it comes to holding trials for genocide or war crimes in other parts? First of all, uh, one lesson from Cambodia is sometimes it just takes a very long time to arrive there, like in this case, more than 30 years. So this is perhaps an encouraging note in one way or the other for some of these very protracted situations like Myanmar and elsewhere that are still waiting for justice. The second is like uh, justice for mass atrocities will always be enmeshed in politics, will always be part and the institution will always have to maneuver these kind of politics very carefully. And involvement of civil society and victims will maximise ownership and engagement. So that is also something important from Cambodia. Gentlemen, I thank you. Yuk Chang, Executive Director of the Documentation Centre of Cambodia, and Dr Christoph Speerfeld, Senior Lecturer at Macquarie Law School, oh, and Adjunct Professor at the Centre for the Study of Humanitarian Law at the Royal University of Law and Economics, in Cambodia. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Coming up, a homage to the very first written works and the people who have loved and protected books throughout history. Over the years, I've often said that this program is built on the bricks of books. We love books. We even love books about books. And uh, many of my favourite programs 
have concerned of being concerned with old libraries. I remember, for example, a fantastic book collection put together by Christopher Columbus's son. So when this lovely book that I'm holding up to the microphone arrived, it seemed a great idea to have a chat to its author. The book is called Papyrus, The Invention of Books in the Ancient World, and yes, it's a love letter, not only to books, but to the people who've collected them, protected them, created them, since the first story was transformed from, well, words in the air to a concrete form. The scribes, the inventors, the translators, the booksellers, the librarians, the storytellers, and of course, the readers. Now, the author of the book and our guide through this fascinating history is Irene Bejejo. Irene is uh, the author of several novels and kids' books and joins us on the line from Madrid. It's a great honour to have you on our Little Wireless program. Oh, I'm so happy and grateful. Thank you for inviting me. I understand you wrote the book as a refuge from the stress of having a very ill young son. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, I was facing a very painful situation. Um, my war, my uh, son was born with very um, serious health condition. He had breathing problems, and we had to face a long hospitalization and. During the course of these years, this book was my refuge, my safe haven, and and I found happiness and joy in writing it, in doing research with the uh, happiness and enthusiasm that books have always kindled in me. Well, I feel great happiness and joy reading the results. So uh, let's go back in time to the era that challenged what had been an oral tradition for telling stories, to when they started being written down. There were no doubt people who didn't like this new idea of uh, fixing stories on paper. Yeah, yeah. I think when we talk about books and storytelling, we are really um, um, thinking about ourselves and every change and revolution in format, in way of writing and, and telling stories has a huge impact in our lives. So, yeah, I was there to ask you and our listeners to travel with our imagination back in time to a world before writing and books or else societies needed to preserve their laws and legends, their beliefs, their, I don't know, technical knowledge, their identity. And if they didn't achieve it, uh, every generation would have to begin painstakingly all over and over again. Therefore, they trained themselves to have prodigious memories and they were true athletes of recollection. And the ancient bard performing epics and legends were able to recite by heart a repertoire of... Um, I had no poems containing several thousands of verses. And yeah, but there was a 
limit in the amount of knowledge that one can recall and transmit to someone else. And that's why I claim in Papyrus that writing uh, and books are a great victory in the battle against destruction and oblivion. Let's uh, begin with the significance of Homer, Homer's plays as some of the earlier stories written down. I'm astonished that you question whether Homer was, in fact, the name of the poet. Yeah, Homer is like the tip of an iceberg. He is a mystery. And when we write his name along with those of great authors of world literature, we are mixing two worlds of gray of, of that can't be compared. Because, you know, Homer's epic came from a period when it makes little sense to speak of authorship, because in the oral tradition, uh, poems were recited in public and poetry was socialized. It belonged to everyone. Each poet could freely use the myths and songs that belonged to the tradition and update them. And, you know, illiterate poets created hundreds of poems that have been lost forever. And the Iliad and the Odyssey that we now read uh, as, if we're, as if they were novels, they occupy a liminal space between orality and the new world. And who was Homer? We'll never know. Every scholar imagine their own Homer, an illiterate poet, the person responsible for the definitive version of the Iliad and the Odyssey, a poet who gave them their finishing touches, a copyist who signed the text, with his name or maybe an editor. It's, it's uh, as I previously said, a mystery. And it never ceases to fascinate me that an author so essential to our culture should be no more than a ghost. Irene, you point out that the first person to actually put their name to a work was a woman. Tell us about the Shakespeare of Sumeria. Yeah, um, really, it, this was one of the greatest um, discoveries, the most astonishing fact that I found when doing research, that the, the world's first author known by name was the Cadian poet Enheduanna, and she was a woman. She was the daughter of the King Sargon the Great, and she was high priestess of the most important temple in summer. Her compositions were lost and then rediscovered in modern times. And her influence during her lifetime was as impressive as her literary legacy. She um, uh, inspired the prayers and psalms of the Bible. And we, we can hear echoes of this Enheduanna uh, in, in the early Christian church. So she was really influential and 
I mean, it's it's impressive the fact that the first author on record in the history of literature is a woman. Now, the oral tradition, of course, is fundamental to indigenous cultures. It's terribly important to the ancient cultures of our First Nations people. But it continued in the ancient world as well, didn't it? Because uh, by the 4th century BC, orality and the written word were still being used and continued so. And you point out that while Jesus preferred the spoken word, his followers used the written word to spread the message. Yeah, well, um, orality was so important in the ancient world. And, you know, they, they love storytelling, traditional storytelling. And for a long, long period of time, this was the first way to communicate and books and writing um, play a secondary role. And, you know, um, even when um, books um, began to spread, people read aloud for oneself and for others. And it's, it's amazing uh, the fact that, you know, even in the library of Alexandria, you could feel a lot of murmurs, hushed murmurs, because um, when a book was read, um, they were witnesses and the reader was a performer and, and it has this um, social dimension and public readings were common and well-loved stories were passed on by word of mouth. So, yeah, uh, you, I think orality um, is still live alive and it is right now when we are speaking uh, in the radio and also with audiobooks or podcasts because the power of the spoken word is enormous, it's huge, and, and, and we feel um, emotional and thrilled about the spoken word. What about the idea that the book will one day be extinct? I'm sure you don't agree with that, and nor, in fact, do I. Yeah, when I um, started writing this book, Papyrus, um, the truth was we, we were besieged by these prophecies of the end of the book. And I wanted to convey um, a different message, a message of hope, because, you know, uh, the book is, um, uh, has proven to be a, um, a great survivor. And there are not so many um, objects in our world today that come from the ancient world. And we have like the chair, the spoon, the um, scissors and, and the book, you know. And, and I think we need to pay respect to these objects, uh, also like the wheel. And of course, technologies come and go. And so much that seemed permanent in the digital age has proved to be, well, it's proved to evaporate. Consider, for example, the VHS tape, whereas the book is pretty much forever, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, the book uh, has been 
also the the inspiration for um, many um, technological technological gadgets that we have today. And I like to underline that um, the traditional book and the um, screens and the new technologies. Uh, can coexist. There is no competition uh, um, for the coexistence of uh, both realities because, you know, I think books are still important today and we have um, different rich opportunities to read in different contexts and do it in the most convenient way. And, and I think we should feel um, fortunate that we have all these possibilities and um, old books, traditional books, um, are still close to our hearts because we love the corporality of books. We like the, we like the thickness and and the design and 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 we like to handle the the books and the noises and you know and something. You know you something. Touch it. I even like the smell of books, but that's a, yeah. <laughs> another topic. <laughs> Well, you've proved the value of the book by writing your book. And for anyone with an interest in the history and power of books and reading, we highly recommend Papyrus, The Invention of Books in the Ancient World, published in Australia by Hachette. And the delightful author, Irene Bayao, has been my guest. Thank you. It's been a privilege. Thank you for your hospitality and you're welcome. <laughs> On our next what is Putin's endgame and how to speak whale? You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.